0: who didn't have a friend who like you know was a mermaid right it's like you grow out of it and like I remember uh, like being on the playground and like uh this girl was like yeah I have like magical powers that, like I can control water and you just that's just how kids are but when it's translated to text on the internet and also adults can get involved and then there's like a subcultural element to it and then eventually it becomes commercialized so you could buy products that are you know, validating this, it kind of changes the game.
1: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. If you listen to this podcast enough, you probably know that I am always trying to connect the dots between real life, such as it is, and certain kinds of social media phenomena, whether it's memes or viral posts or ideas about social norms that seemingly take hold out of nowhere. For instance, a few weeks ago, I had the author, therapist, and relationship expert, Lori Gottlieb on. And I asked her, among lots of other things, about the emergence of dating advice coming from a contingent, not only of manosphere types, but even like super smart, sort of anti-woke, but not necessarily conservative types online. I'm talking about the sort of people who are worried about the way that the dating and mating scene is, seems so irrevocably broken, people not finding partners, people not having enough kids, You know, waiting too long to settle down, that kind of thing. Anyway, my point is that while we had an amazing conversation, Lori actually was not entirely familiar with what I was referring to in that particular case, which shows you how siloed we've all become. That's why I am so excited to bring on this week's guest, Catherine D. Catherine is a writer and a cultural commentator who is one of the most astute observers of online culture that I've ever encountered. If you want to understand how identity concepts like other kin, for instance, identifying as a wolf, that's what that refers to, identifying as a wolf or some other kind of creature. If you want to understand how that kind of thing became connected to social justice politics, Catherine is the one to explain it. In this conversation, we talk about how young kids just playing around with silly ideas on places like Tumblr found their way into our political discourse and all the different ways that this is affecting people, including and maybe especially when it comes to dating and forming relationships. Catherine herself was so indoctrinated by Manosphere content when she was younger that she ended up marrying someone she met online after knowing him in person for just three days for fear of never meeting anyone else. So she's going to talk about that and lots of other things. As always, paying subscribers, hear the entire conversation. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, go become one right now at megandom.substack.com. You will be glad you did. And here's my conversation with Catherine D. Catherine D., welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks for having me. I have really been looking forward to this conversation. I've followed you on Twitter or X for a long time. You have this way of taking online phenomena that I find intriguing yet entirely perplexing and distilling it into something that makes sense. So thank you for that, uh, for starters. Uh, My listeners might know that I have become especially interested lately in this discourse that's coming from this sort of newly red-pilled, black-pilled, online, manospheric, political right, especially when it comes to like mating and dating, obsessions with things like body count, female fertility. There's so much of that that you've covered that I want to talk about, as well as other stuff, the girl boss meme, this world of anime enthusiasts viewing themselves and others as, for lack of a better word, cartoon characters. So there's a lot of ground here. Uh, But before that, uh, I am curious how you position yourself in the social observer commentator universe. Are you a journalist? Are you a blogger? Do, Do you reject
0: such labels? Who are you? So for a while I was saying I'm a journalist and I guess by some definitions I am but it doesn't really feel right because I, I I'm not I'm not as neutral as a, a journalist should be right uh, not that <laughs> well this is the moment for you then right so I was like you know what blogger just seems correct because I, I get on the internet and share my opinions and sometimes that involves a lot of research and what you know one might call reporting uh, but sometimes it doesn't so it's so variable. It seems like that's sort of the safest label. Okay. So, but let's talk about
1: how you sort of got into this. I, I know you're, you're 30 years old. So were you, and, and you have, you've described your Substack as an emotional and psychological scrapbook of digital life. So are you like, did, did you sort of study this in college? Like, when did you start thinking about this stuff in a serious way?
0: Um, I don't know when I started thinking about it in a serious way. I, so I am like first wave digital native. Like I got on the computer before 10, before the age of 10. I've been online for a really, really long time. I think I was first on the the actual internet, like unsupervised at like seven. So I have a lot of, a lot of my childhood is, is memories of being online. Um, and it's you know, it's actually not that unusual for someone in, in my my age cohort to have uh, been online that early. But I think Zoomers have sort of stolen the millennial thunder and like they, they think like, oh, we're the first digital natives. And it's like, not not really, like, you know, it it how different is it like you first you first got online at seven versus you first got online at five, right? You're really, <laughs> you're really All right. or like
1: in sp- utero, yes.
0: Right. Like you're splitting hairs at that point. So I would remember like a, a lot of things. Like I remember like you know, my dad coming home and being like, oh, there's this cool new thing. It's called Google. No more <laughs> Yahoo. We're going to start using Google, right? And, and it, it, I, would, I would incorporate it a lot in, in the writing I did like at school. Um, and later on, I worked at an ad agency and it became like very salient. And at this ad agency I worked at, for some reason, the CEO wanted us all to have newsletters. I don't really know why he. I think it was like his way of making sure that this company, which had branches all over the country, was communicating with like the other offices or something. Anyway, so so my my newsletter was about you know internet phenomena of your and how they might apply to like present day advertising trends and and really the the latter part never <laughs> never came into play. So I you know I wrote about all of these things. This was during the the, the Trump administration. And uh, it was a very fun time writing about the internet, even to a very small audience. And then uh, a little bit later I I got on, I created my default friend account, which it wasn't my first uh, Twitter incarnation, but it was the first one. I went through this weird phase where I was like always on Twitter, but constantly deleting my account. I was totally anonymous. Um, I was like big, I was a big lurker. I would like DM, DM, uh, you know, cultural figures and then be like, Oh, that was weird. And like, nuke myself. <laughs> and I finally was like, okay, I'm going to create this default friend account. I'm going to be normal on it. I'm not going to delete it. And someone invited me to to write for a website and I wrote about dating apps. Um, and I think this was 2019 at this point. So like a long time had passed and people really liked it. I got invited on a couple of podcasts to talk about it. And then, you know, the rest is history. And then I just kept, I kept writing and I've been writing ever since
1: what did you say about dating apps that was so interesting to people i
0: think i think it was something about like just the the conveyor belt nature of it or something and at this point it's it was a very tired sort of critique but then i guess it was it was one of uh, i was one of the first people to maybe not the first but i was one of the first to make this to make this a uh, criticism of dating apps and it was if it still felt new then <laughs> Okay. All right. I want to fast
1: forward to the present moment just for a little bit here and talk about this stuff that I'm seeing a lot online from like this kind of well, there's sort of like at least two levels of it. There's this kind of like incel world, like very angry, like I said, red pilled, black pilled young men who seem to be really angry that they can't find a girlfriend and they resent women for like every single thing they can think of. And they're obsessed with like hitting the wall and they're obsessed with female fertility and they tweet all kinds of like, you know, misogynist, that's really the only word for it, kinds of things. And then there's this kind of like entrepreneurial bro influencers who are taking advantage of those guys and their desperation and tweeting things about how the best ROI for your business is to have like a high value wife and to have a family <laughs> and and all this kind of thing. And I would love for you to kind of break that down with me. And, and I will actually just start by reading a tweet about, about Taylor Swift. Uh, this was from, this is actually a woman who tweeted this. This is uh, Abby Roth, who is Ben Shapiro's sister. Uh, she's a, like a trad influencer it appears to be. So she says, can we all recognize that Taylor Swift is old, (laughs) 34, never married, never had kids, still singing about broken hearts and dating. If you're coming home to an empty apartment at the end of the day, you can't convince me that money and fame alone are the recipes for success. Now she did get a lot of pushback on this, but the Taylor Swift is a barren old cat lady theme does seem to be cropping up more and more. And I wonder what you make
0: of it. God, it's so it's so ridiculous because it's like this conversation's been going on for a very very long time, right? But sub in different women, <laughs> and this is sort of like the pinnacle of it because it re- it reveals how <laughs> bankrupt the whole worldview is, right? Because before it's like there's it's it's plausible, right? Like if if someone is is saying this to an individual, even if you see it as absurd on its face. There's a party that's like, well, maybe he's right. Like, I don't like I, you know, I I am like 32 years old and I I have two cats. You know, it's like it kind of does worm its way into your head as a woman. But when it's Taylor Swift and it's just like, you can't compare. Like, first of all, it's just a fool's errand to compare Taylor Swift to just like a regular person, period. <laughs> right. So she's like right on the face. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's com- a
1: bad, it's a, it's a bad choice. There would be better, more effective choices.
0: It's like, it be, and because she's so exceptional in so many ways, it it's very like revealing of how like craven this whole thing is. It's just like, you know, use another example, right? Or like this idea that any woman who, who is, is leading that kind of lifestyle is brainwashing other women. I also think is like pretty absurd, right? Like Right. It, you know, we've had so many divas like this, Cher, Madonna, right? Like, it's like, there's like a long, you know, and eventually they they have children or they have husbands. They have many husbands. Yeah. But that so- would be, that would be proving the, <laughs> these guys, their, their point that they just kind of
1: run through husbands. I mean, where, when did you first starting, start noticing this? Like, okay, here's another one I'm seeing. Someone says, women are, you know, this is a quote, women are happy, single, happier, single, and childless is a femme cell cope. So when did you start seeing this pushback to the like independent woman, girl boss, sort of meme structure? So this
0: is actually very old. You see stuff in the, uh, and prob- probably even before the, then, but you know, as far as my own familiarity, you see stuff written about this, in like the early 90s, late 80s, you know, the 80s sort of famously had this kind of like sex negative backlash. Um, Susan Faludi's backlash is basically all about this online as like a manosphere thing. I encountered it like pretty early. I remember reading a lot of this content as like a like very like uh, you know, sort of like hapless teenager with like acne and you know, you know, bad taste and fashion and kind of overweight, which was not helpful. <laughs> I'll tell you that. So it's been per- I mean, it's been percolating for a long time. I, I would say, like, you know, just in the discourse period, period, um, for as long as there have been working independent women, there have been people, both men and women, who have said, well, "Well, no, that's not that's not good for you." And then as a discreet, like internet subculture since at least at least the mid 2000s
1: okay but something about this seems a little bit different to me
0: it's a it feels more commercial commercialized right like it feels like now it's like it's it's really it's really ramped up especially online especially on social media it's it has a different texture when you're seeing it on on twitter which is supposedly a, you know, more diverse platform, right. As opposed to like a self-consciously like navigating to, to blogs or forums that are sharing this kind of information where it's a little bit more siloed and every now and then you'd have some of this stuff like crop up on talk shows, but it's still like, at at that point, it's still sort of an oddity.
1: Um, it's like like a a freak show. It was a joke. I mean, there was like the rules, I mean, I know that's not exactly the same thing. So The Rules was this dating book written by two women. I think it was like the early to mid 90s. And it was just the most retrograde, like, you know, never ask a guy out, like never, ever talk to him. Don't even look at him. If, if Unless he's chasing you down the street in order to ask you out, he doesn't want you enough. So don't bother. I mean, <laughs> and both of the, both of the women were married at the time and then ended up getting divorced. Anyway, like there was sort of that, flavor of what we now call content. But I feel like the stuff that we're seeing now, it's so noticeable to me because it almost feels like it is sanctioned. And by that, I mean, sanctioned, like in a good way, like not, not, not censured, but actually sort of there's, there's a kind of stamp of approval that comes from this like intellectual sort of pronatalist, very high achieving, like we, we want, we're, we're kind of edge lords of the truth. And yet, you know, we <laughs> see what's best for society and we want to just, you know, speak the hard truth about how everybody needs to have a family and settle down early and stop falling for feminist gaslighting, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. I, I feel, well, I feel like there's two strains, right? You have the pronatalist or like allegedly pronatalist. You know, you one has to wonder like who are you trying to convince again by like saying like Taylor Swift is a like low value or something. You know, it's like that's that you're not speaking to other women. You're speaking to other men who you know are going to agree with you. I I think at least. And especially with some of these more mean-spirited uh posts and I've been pushing back on that personally. It's like who are you talking to because it's not, you know, it's not like women in my my cohort. Like we're not looking at this and saying like, oh, better get married, <laughs> you know. So you you have you have those you have those guys, and they come in many different flavors, but they're basically the same bucket. And then the, the second bucket is sort of like men going their own way, kind of like gangster, you know, rack up as many hoes as possible, sort of vibe. You know, like Andrew Tate comes to mind as sort of like the most immediately uh, accessible version of this, but there's so many of these guys where it's like a picture of them and then some like AI generated sex worker. And like, they have like a Lamborghini, you know, it's, like, it's really right. kind of well, like, it's like, a, it's like a 12 year old boy's idea. Of <laughs> oh a, yeah, abs- absolutely. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, cr- it's crazy. And it's, it, and again, you have to ask like, who are you, who is this for? Like, who are you, who are you talking to? Because it's, it's, it's never the alleged audience and you have women too, on both sides who know that not many women are going to want to be part of this. So they could easily differentiate themselves and like, they're the one woman who sees women for what they are. They, they know the truth. And it, it is, it does feel, it doesn't feel niche. I think, I think you're totally right about that. It doesn't feel like it's hidden in some dark subculture online. It's completely on the surface. It's very easy to find on certain social media platforms. It's, it's everywhere and People love to talk about it. So even if it was the subcultural phenomenon, the media has like memed it into everyone's mind. Like my mom knows who Andrew Tate is and she knows who Pearl Davis is. Oh my gosh. Um, and she might not know the smaller figures who, you know, like you and I are like, oh, this person's a goofball whenever we log on to Twitter, but she, she's vaguely aware that this is, that this is happening. Um, and it's because we can't get enough of this gender war content.
1: Right. So I'm sure you're familiar. There was a poll that was released the other day. We're recording this on February 1st. So in addition to all this discourse about Taylor Swift, who happens to be dating a football player from the Kansas City Chiefs, they're going to be in the Super Bowl. By the time people hear this, we may know the results of that. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff uh, in the news in the past week, including this Gallup poll that's showing that worldwide, men are leaning much more to the political right and young women are are leaning much more hard progressive and this is causing a kind of mating crisis in people's minds i wonder what your reaction to that news was
0: my first reaction to it was what does it mean right like and then i realized that at least in the the one that the financial times released liberal and conservative were self reports and i was you know saying this on an, another show I have a lot of questions about that because what you consider liberal and what you consider conservative is very fluid depending on where you are. So, yeah, and that does, that does feel, that does feel like a meaningful detail. Um, And I wish it wasn't like self-identified labels because I would love to know like what, you know, what's the breakdown on actual positions and actual viewpoints you know it's like for example, like you and I are probably both considered liberal and conservative, depending on what room we're in so that that was a a big question that immediately stood out to me, and I was also wondering, like, does this include an unwillingness to make concessions for someone they perceive as being on the other team, which isn't i don't maybe maybe that information is available. I know there's that red flag list, but since when do women, you know, stick to their red flag? You know yeah, what wait, I mean? Since oh, when oh, to right. men?
1: <laughs> wait, there's an official red flag list for like pol- political uh, things to watch out yeah, for? Yeah, there's,
0: there's another there's another poll that re- was released and it was like, here are the red flags for women and here are the red flags for men. And, you know, the women were predictable stuff like MAGA against vaccination. It's like, okay, sure. But like, you know, since since when have women... It <laughs> held true to their own red flag lists, right? <laughs> right.
1: Okay. Well, you had a piece unheard back last fall. Left wing women are learning to love right wing men, and the the subhead, and I know writers don't write the headlines, is political division has become a sexual fetish. What did you mean by that?
0: Oh, so there is this. There is a, a weird art a weird article that had come out about, like, like how political themes had started to, like, crop up um, more and more in kink communities. And, you know, like, like actual, like, people who are, again, like, go, going to pornographic or, like, kink-specific sites. And I thought that was really interesting. And I feel like this is a little bit reflected in some of the, like, it, d- dating things that you see among young people on certain, like, social platforms. Like there is like like oh like the you know the right wing poster is like a little bit of a bad boy or the left wing girl is like she's probably crazy and that's kind of sexy
1: and if right. feel- well she'll I'll, she'll have sex with you because she has a high body count as opposed to a nice conservative right. trad girl
0: <laughs> and, and and it feels like it's it's sort of becoming in that way like a little bit gendered but what's different about that is that it's not separating people but it's becoming another way to, it's the right kind of difference, right? It's the right kind of differentiation. Like, oh, like men and women aren't, you know, one like fluid slop. It's like men are like this and and women are like this. And actually that's kind of sexy. Okay. So there is a binary element here.
1: Right. Okay. Well, I want to know what you think about how damaging this is or isn't, because I'm imagining you as a teenager taking in this content and it must be, it must have affected you in a certain way. Like it, it just se- it seems incredibly damaging to me. I mean, I look at it from a certain distance and, and I get upset about it enough as it is. And I'm not a teenager. Like, what was that like?
0: It really warped my perspective um, a lot. Cause I already, I, you know, I, I, I grew up in Palm beach County where the beauty standard was very high And very sort of prescriptive, and you know the rest of the country isn't like that. But you know, if if you're if you're in like Palm Beach or Orange Orange County or something like that, it's going to be a little bit a little bit different. And it was validating all of my worst suspicions. And I've actually heard from other young women who encountered similar things. But later, you know, women who are in their early twenties and even late teens in some cases have said like, yeah, I read this stuff, and it Made me not like men. It made me very suspicious of men. For me, I wasn't suspicious of men. And I think this was like the more common reaction in my generation. I directed it inward and I was like, there's something deficient in myself and I am lower value. So I was, I guess I was taking it more like at face value. And, you know, the other reaction is an attraction to radical feminism or even separatism and you know this, this so there's two there's two ways to slice it and i, I don't know which reaction is better um i used to think that uh you know, at least some of the women i've i've talked to like there's something more empowering about radical feminism but the more i was in communication with them i was like well not really because you're you're demonizing uh, the, half the planet and it's it's really like not a nuanced at least the version of radical feminism that these that these women are subscribing to, um, is not like a very nuanced worldview, and it's it's just the mirror image of some of the worst misogyny online. And yeah, it's it's not you know, and, and I'm I'm sure they're not interpreting the texts they're reading, you know, as faithfully as maybe they should. But that's how it it comes out when it's it you know then interpreted online among young people.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious, sort of like, what was the order of things? Which came first? Because I started noticing the kind of Tumblr discourse, you know, maybe around 2012, 2013. I mean, I'm older, so I'm sure it was around several years before that. And it seems obvious that what we're now seeing from these red-pilled guys, it's. I think I, I recently heard it described as an inverse meme. So it's this kind of extreme, really ugly stuff from men is reacting to extreme, really ugly stuff that was coming from women, ostensibly speaking, on behalf of feminism, you know, over the last 10 years or so. And this, then, of course, it was like mainstreamed by the Me Too movement. But, you know, back in, you know, say this sort of, you know, in, in the heyday of Tumblr, what First of all, describe what Tumblr was and what was on there in its, at its peak and what it was reacting to exactly.
0: So Tumblr uh, emerges in 2007 and it peaks like 2012 to like 2014, I'd say is like really when all eyes on are on Tumblr. Um, and it was notorious for having a lot of like far left views, a lot of fandoms often the intersection of leftist activism and, uh, fandom culture. So like you're super into Sherlock, but you're also, you know, really into social justice. Okay. What is that about?
1: Let's stop right there for a second. Okay. Cause this is fascinating. How did that emerge? Like when did we get, when did social justice get mapped onto like obscure fandom for fictional characters?
0: So there's a lot of theories about this. I, it's, it's, so it's partially just the demographic makeup of fandoms. It's a lot of people who feel, and, and not that like you can't be a fan if you don't feel this way, but uh, people who are really like in the weeds with fandom are often people who feel marginalized or they're misfits in some way. And there's a natural attraction to activism if you're in that social position. So that, that's that's just to set the scene. Okay. And you have
1: To leftist activism, would you say leftist activism, or does it go the other way too? If you're,
0: it sometimes goes the other way, but it's it's a it's a little it's a little bit different. I mean, it it, it obviously goes the other way because we had we had GamerGate, right? Which is <laughs> also sort of a fandom kind of political <laughs> explosion, right? So, but on but on Tumblr, it's 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 a you know it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, people who are they're often like in grad school and like they're, you know, they're really into all these different things. But then, but then there's also a lot of teenagers who are really into, you know, whatever media property. And then there's people who are purely activists and they're all, they're all using the same platform. And what a lot of people who study Tumblr theorize is the way it became sort of like one thing and this ideology kind of formed was they were, your, your, your feed, your dashboard would would be, there was, there was no way to like filter it out, right? So it was all these, you would see all these communities at once and slowly they started to blend together and they started to interact with each other just, be, just from exposure. But, but that being said, the foundation was already there because the people involved in each group already had a predisposition to be interested in these things.
1: Okay, and can you give an example of some of the things they were interested in?
0: Yeah, so l- let me think. Like cultural appropriation, which is this idea that you're benefiting off a culture that isn't your own was v- was very bit, was a very big topic on Tumblr. And that was one of the first sort of uh classically like social justice topics right that like then the the right-wing media took and was like look at this thing people are upset about you know isn't it ridiculous right and there's sort of famously this case at Oberlin which was totally blown out of proportion and misinterpreted and is sort of as much a product of the media <laughs> as it is anything that actually happened which you know people may or may not remember was but anyway this the um, the, uh,
1: the bakery across the street that was accused of racism or are you referring to something
0: else at I, I, Oberlin? No, I, no, there is a, there is an issue at Oberlin where I think like their cafeteria had made like a number of like culturally. Oh insensitive yes. Yes. Dishes. Yes. Yes. The, the yeah. sushi or the general sauce chicken.
1: I don't know that I would be eating sushi in Oberlin, Ohio anyway. Yeah, but.
0: neither would I. So like that, that was, that, you know, that was an issue that um, that sort of emerged on Tumblr and it would become relevant in fandoms because You know, as you're imagining different scenarios for different fictional characters, sometimes you would like race bend them, or sometimes you, which means like, let's say you really like a white fictional character, you reimagine them as another race, or you know, and that can go in any direction. Or let's say there's a you know media property that's originally from a different country, and you're like engaging with it, and then in the the weirder parts of this are like people who identify, like literally identify as certain fictional characters. <laughs> so there'd be this very esoteric conversation that would happen where it's like, you know, I have a soul bonded or I have connected with in this profound way, a Chinese cartoon character, but I am a white woman, you know? So there's like all sorts of weird things. Okay. Where was that coming from? Because, okay. And like, <laughs> what year would this have been? Because we we hear about this
1: now and it's like, kind of a joke and it's like libs of TikTok will highlight I don't think these it's a, sorts I don't think of it's things. Joke right, is it a joke? So yeah, but that's what I'm saying. So like what, yeah. kind of, when would this have been and what kinds of people were saying this? Like, did, did they have mental health issues or, or were they just like, like super, like just like extremely
0: theoretical academic types? So we're jazzed about the other kin. I, I love this topic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me. So other, the other kin community Is actually weirdly old.
1: Other kin, Uh, we should say, just for our for our Uh, listeners who are not familiar. This is
0: yeah. So an other kin, broadly, right, is a human who believes they have a non-human soul. And it's actually a really broad label. And you drill down and there's a sub-label, which is fiction kin. So you believe that your soul is that of a fictional character. And there's many different explanations for how this can possibly be true, right? This is something that was definitely like a punchline on Tumblr. A lot of people joked about it, but it was a serious identification. And for the most part, it was teenagers who were just kind of messing around, right? This doesn't mean that they weren't serious, but it's one of these like weird things you believe when you're 14 and there's a community attached to it and you get involved. And then, you know, you go to college or even much sooner than that, you're like, I don't know what I was doing, whatever. You know, it's just, it's just a weird part of your past, right? But, you know, there's, there's all sorts of people who are involved in this community. And I would say most of them aren't, like, academics at all, actually. It comes out of neo-paganism. It comes out of, like, a really weird niche of neo-paganism in the 70s. The people who were really big fans of Lord of the Rings...
1: Yes, are you talking about people who would go to renaissance festivals and that sort of it's,
0: thing? It's that that sort of vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people who were
1: polyamorous before it was
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Um and there was a, you know, a, a group of people, there was two sisters who would send out these these newsletters about how they were elves. They were they they were elf kin, elven souls, and you could actually buy books, uh, compilations of these letters and later zines that they would send out. Um, and eventually, you know, they did this for a really long time. And eventually in the late 80s or maybe early 90s, they created a list serve for people, which then turned into a, a Usenet news group for people who identify as as elves. But it started attracting different people who were like, well, I'm not an elf. I'm a, you know, I'm a wolf or I'm a I'm a fairy or I'm a hobbit or like, you know, I'm whatever thing. So you were an elf kin, you were other kin and the other, you know, insert whatever here. And that that developed over time. You always meet someone like this. I'm saying this like this is a normal thing to do. <laughs> if you go to like a neo pagan, like a huge neo pagan conference, like I've met a ton of other kin in person at events like PantheaCon, which is no longer running. These are like uh, conventions for people who this is a, a, more of a lifestyle than just an internet thing for them. But anyway, so it develops over time and you have like live journal groups and forums and chat rooms and and eventually it makes its way to Tumblr. And suddenly it's an explosion of opportunities for people who would have otherwise not had exposure to this. Now, you know, th- I mean this if think about it like if you're like 13, 14 years old, this is like an advancement of things you're probably already thinking because it's it's so like really just imaginative it play. It's like drawing in your notebook. This is what we did
1: back in the 80s. We would just draw, not me, but because I can't draw, but we would just like people, you would see them drawing these sorts of things, like dood- doodling in their notebooks and being right. lost, in, lost in thought that way.
0: And like, if, you know, I'm sure you remember like who didn't have a friend who like, you know, was a mermaid, right? It's like you grow out of it and like, I remember uh, like being on the playground and like, Uh, this girl is like, yeah, I have like magical powers, like I can control water. And you just that's just how kids are. But when it's translated to text on the internet, and also adults can get involved. And then there's like a subcultural element to it. And then eventually it becomes commercialized. So you could buy products that are, you know, validating this, it's kind of changes the game. It's it's like, I love to think of a lot of these internet subcultures, as like an extended form of play, not for everyone who's involved, because for some people, it's, uh, you know, more religious or it's, it's more, it it is more serious, but for a lot of the people who sort of end up as tourists in these spaces, it is a lot like, uh, you know, playing with dolls or a form of role-playing or any kind of play really.
1: So you say it was an extended form of play and that makes sense. When did it become this kind of opportunistic bullying? Like it seems like then it, at a certain point people started weaponizing these kinds of identities and really using it against one another.
0: Um, so do you do you mean like a libs of TikTok taking a video of like a sixteen year old who's saying that, Oh, I'm a multiple system and one of my identities a multiple system is another word for people who don't know, it's another word for multiple personalities. Oh. Yeah. So multiple system. Is, Multiple system, no. right? You, do, so, like, do you mean like a you know someone who makes a TikTok like that, but they're clearly like you know barely out of childhood, and they you know maybe they're being a cornball, but like, right? Why do we need to no, <laughs> amplify I, this? I no, well, that's what's happening now, and this is
1: one of the reasons that I can't stand libs of TikTok. But no, I'm thinking even back like 2014 or so. That's when I started noticing like the call out culture. Like I I was never okay. on I was never on Tumblr, but I remember like I remember reading Jezebel for instance. So then we're getting into like the feminist blogosphere era and I remember when Je, like when Jezebel first started, it was fantastic. It was hilarious. You know, they would do these breakdowns of airbrushing as we called it back in the day, airbrushing, and it was like there, the content was really high quality and it was funny and it was irreverent and it, there was, you know, sense of irony. And then I started noticing, like I'm gonna call you out, like you know in the comments, somebody would make a joke, and then suddenly that joke was not to be made anymore like there was a there was this kind of rising um tension around who was who was allowed to say what, and my understanding was that this had evolved on Tumblr, and so that's what I'm wondering, like when did this kind of you know messing around and playful spirit turn into something? just darker or at least much more fraught.
0: So there's all these different start points that people give and they all seem, uh, you know, they all seem plausible, right? Like there's all these different like gates, you know, like dongle gate or whatever, like that. And a lot of them are based (laughs) Dongle
1: gate? Wait, is that, I'm (laughs) sorry that I might know what that is. Is that the shirt? Is that the guy that was, oh no, no, no. That was, that was something at like a science conference, right?
0: There's, uh, I think Dongle Gate was at a tech conference. Let me, yeah. let me just, let me just. You know, it. it that it was some, it was a woman. It was two dorky tech guys who
1: were sitting in an audience for some like event at a tech conference, and they were making a joke. They're making
0: jokes, but and this the, woman the,
1: was sitting in front of them, overheard them, and
0: right got mad. But at But there was also there was elevator gate. I mean, so there's all these there's all <laughs> right. these gates, right. Right? right? So like you, so you have, but I actually think. I don't know I don't know if these are actually the start points because you see people starting to write about call-out culture even earlier than that, like call out culture as we know it. You, there's a really great essay called History of the Board Ho, which I always mix up. I, I love this writer. Her name is Humdog. she's she's pat, since passed away and I've, I'm constantly referencing all of uh, you know her whole her, her whole ove. Um And I think history of the Board Ho, is either like 2002 or 1997, right? So it's, it's, it's early regardless. What this article is about, or th- what this essay is about, is how social capital works on forums and how people rise to the top. And she sort of discusses call-out culture as we know it, but because it's taking place in the microcosm of a message board, it seems a lot less significant. So what my theory is, you know, it's, it's more that these more sensitive communities are fighting for something. And because it's mostly online, the only thing they could really do is call each other out, right? Because other forms of like political maneuvering aren't quite as smooth. So you have a lot of, you have a lot of different, uh, ingredients in this stew. You have Communities of people who are naturally kind of sensitive and a little bit awkward who already might have uh you know very specific needs or or worldviews increasingly the industries that many of them in are changing uh you have the the social landscape of the internet there's there's all of these things adding up. How do they fight for their turf, calling each other out online
1: were they identifying as people who Lacked power, though. Like, when did we start to see people identifying with their lack of power and agency in the world?
0: I think this starts kind. This starts in the nineties, because you also have like PC culture. Yes, right. That's kind. That's kind of in the in the background. The Tumblr style (laughs) oppression Olympics, as we would call it back in the day, right? Yeah. That that penetrates the the mainstream in like 2014. And I, I, I wonder like what the mainstream breaking point of that is, but I, I do kind of think that it has something to do with digital media. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, I think a big part of this is journalists felt disenfranchised by their changing industry. So, you you have this like dual issue of like them scraping weird stories from Tumblr and Reddit, and maybe even sometimes 4chan. And then also like their own insecurity about the way that their industry is changing. Yes. Creates yes. an opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think that's a huge point. And right. So around that time, you had this stuff rising to the surface. And you did, you know, in fairness, you did have a lot of young media people who related to it, especially young women. So it was resonating with them, you know, in terms of the substance. But yeah, that's when people were like starting to have their stories evaluated by the number of page views, the number of comments.
0: And the confessional essay boom too, Oh yeah, right? Yeah. So it's at that, I mean, that's, that's like begging for this kind of like, Oh, it's, it was worse for me because you're already selling trauma porn and you're selling trauma porn for, you know, that could be your only way to break in or even stay in, in this industry that you, you may have gone to journalism school or, you know, it, you may have worked magazines for a number of years and suddenly everything changed and you don't know what to do. It felt like it was almost designed for this to for this to explode in this way. Mhm.
1: And so what do you uh make of the connection between this kind of mentality and a generation that grew up with therapy culture and a lot of psychotropic pharmaceuticals and just like, you know, a feelings first approach. Let's let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, I so I feel like with with therapy culture, I mean I, I mean I I kind of hate to say it, but I I feel like the the line about it being like a lack of accountability is, is a really big part of it. It feels like people were like, I I remember even in my own life, especially like in high school and like late middle school, uh, people would be struggling with pretty like garden variety things, garden variety that not, not to mean that it wasn't difficult, but still like, you know, not, not out of the ordinary at all. And then it'd be like, well, I have OCD. It's like, do you have OCD or is it like, are you like 14 and like your hormones are raging and also like maybe your home life isn't perfect or so you, you know, like there's, or like kids at school are mean. And this was just, this became like a recurring theme. And I was very skeptical of it probably because my parents were skeptical of it. Right. And I was, I was just, <laughs> I was absorbing that from them. So it, it I mean, it de- they definitely reinforce one another and it, like over time it becomes a way to explain what's going on. Right. Um, so maybe accountability actually isn't, a compassionate enough framing, but it does become this very like powerful explanatory tool. And I think a lot of like, you know, wokeness for lack of a better word is also a a very powerful way to make sense of why, why do bad things happen to me? Or, you know, how am I understanding the world around me? and then it's you know it's it's again like amplified by these other forces that have nothing to do with that
1: right and then somewhere along the way resilience and grit got coded as right wing yeah yeah okay so how did this start pouring out into the mainstream is it time to sort of jump ahead to the me too era like when did this go from totally online to suddenly like you know television hosts are talking about this and you know showing up in storylines on you know series you know sitcoms and in movies and and everywhere like when did it hit the mainstream
0: i think people start noticing it pretty early actually i remember there was like a spate of articles excuse me in like the new york times and like the washington post about Tumblr style social justice activism, and also you know social justice warriors, and the phrase oppression Olympics was really
1: big. It was critical, though.
0: Yeah, they were they were were critical, and but it's it's weird. Like that that was like totally like like memory hold. Maybe around uh uh, George Zimmerman, that might be. When it starts, because even like Occupy Wall Street, where you still see the sentiment, we're still critical of it. We're not really taking these guys seriously.
1: Or like, this Yeah, is no, that
0: was, yeah, Occupy yeah. Wall
1: Street was an economic thing that was sort of like the Bernie Sanders, that that was not a kind of identity category based.
0: But, but it kind of was because there was a lot of, because deeply tied into this college is too expensive, millennials are fucked, is this sort of feeling of like we are victims of the world and it becomes like more and more granular over time
1: but I hate you. that was the first half of my interview with katherine d there's about another 45 minutes to go and it's really good to hear it become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com. that's m-e-g-h-a-n-d-a-u-m in the meantime, I should tell you that Catherine is a contributing writer at Tablet Magazine, a columnist at the Washington Examiner, and a frequent contributor at publications like Spectator and Unheard. Her social media handle, on Twitter anyway, probably other places as well, is at default underscore friend. Default friend. It's kind of her uh, imprimatur. You can find her Substack stack at default blog. And you should really follow her because she will help you make sense of the world. And again, you should join the listener community so you can hear the rest of this incredible conversation. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. What else do you need to know? The Unspeakeasy, my viewpoint diversity community for women that is soon gonna have some activities that will include gentlemen. Very, very soon I'm gonna announce that. But oh, in the meantime, what do you need to know? We have many retreats planned for this year. We will be in Louisville, Kentucky, Los Angeles, Seattle, Toronto, Woodstock, New York. We will be in Austin. Although by the time you're hearing this, I think it may be too late. We may be in Austin uh, as you're hearing this. But go to theunspeakeasy.com to find out more about that. You can join the online community too. Please, please consider that. If the retreats are not feasible for you right now, the online community is incredible and it's very affordable and there is so much going on there, including book clubs and we have guest speakers and it's amazing. Theunspeakeasy.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then.